Good afternoon. My name is Juan Carlos Hidalgo. I'm a policy analyst on Latin America at Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Not long ago, as Tom Wainwright points out in his book, drug legalization was a niche policy advocacy issue led, among others, by a few libertarians and the editors of The Economist. And actually, recently, they published this uh, article, which Tom just let me know that he actually authored it a couple of weeks ago. But the recent horrors of the war on drugs in Mexico and Central America have increased people's awareness of the failure of prohibition and the need to talk to tackle the so-called drug problem using a different approach than strict law enforcement. Tom Wainwright argues that an economic perspective to the issue can best help us to understand how the illicit drug industry works and what's wrong with current policies. It was, after all, leading free market economists from the University of Chicago, such as Nobel laureates Milton Friedman and Gary Becker, using simple rules of supply and demand, who most for forcefully pointed out the futility of prohibition. This approach was echoed by none other than one of Latin America's most renowned and infamous recent drug warriors, former Mexican President Felipe Calderón, as if to acknowledge the failure of his own drug policies by the end of his term in 2012, he told the Wall Street Journal the following, if the price of drugs goes up, thanks largely to interdiction efforts, and the demand is the same, you will increase profits, so you are creating more incentives for, for participants in the market. He went on to say that it is clearly a textbook case for, of an unstable economic system in which the more successful you are, the more criminals you are creating. This is precisely what the war on drugs has been doing for over 40 years. As Tom Wainwright writes in his Narconomics, prohibition has driven out the price of a few cheap agricultural commodities to create a hideously violent $300 billion global industry. And what a formidable industry drug trafficking has become. Drug cartels have shown tremendous ingenuity, adaptability, and entrepreneurship to satisfy over a quarter billion customers worldwide. In this regard, narconomics is a fascinating read for anyone interested in understanding why governmental efforts to thwart this business are likely to fail. I found it particularly interesting to read how cartels opt for a vertically integrated business model for heroin, for example, controlling the production of the drug all the way from, from Mexico to its distribution in the streets of the United States. However, when it comes to cocaine trafficking, Criminal organizations prefer to specialize in just one part of the business. In choosing their business model, cartels are actually applying the findings of another Chicago boy, a Nobel laureate, Ronald Coase, whose seminal work, The Nature of the Firm, explains the conditions under which companies choose to contract out some particular ta task instead of handling internally. But I will let the author of the book properly explain, explain the findings of his research which took him from the high Andean plateaus of Bolivia to the gang-infested prisons of El Salvador to the trendy marijuana chops of Colorado. We will also hear from Moises Naim, one of Washington's leading thinkers, whose 2005 book, Illicit, shed light on how illicit commerce is changing the world by transforming economies, reshaping politics, and capturing governments. Let me introduce Tom Wainwright. He is the Britain editor of The Economist, until 2003, he was the Mexico City Bureau Chief for that magazine, covering Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean, 
as well as parts of South America and the United States border region. He's a contributor to the Times, Guardian, and Literary Review. He has also been a commentator on the drug business on CNN, the BBC, NPR, among others. Wainwright has a first-class degree in philosophy and politics and economics from Oxford University. Please help me welcome Tom Wainwright. Well, thanks a lot, Juan Carlos, and thank you all for being here. It's a great privilege to be here, and it's especially great to be sharing a platform with Moises Naim, who's one of the great authorities on this subject, and indeed many other subjects. Um, I hear we've got practically a full house today, and it's good to see so many people here, although I'm almost a bit concerned that there are so many people in Washington who want to know more about how to run a, a drug cartel. Um, I'll assume that your interest is purely academic, as is mine. Um, I thought I should probably start by just explaining myself, really, and explaining how I came to write this rather unusual book. Um, it began when I got sent to Mexico with The Economist in 2010, and I thought that I was going to be writing about sort of fairly ordinary subjects, you know, regular business, whether it was the oil industry or the car business or tequila or tourism, this kind of stuff. But this was 2010, and just as I arrived, the drug war arrived, and this was a time when in Mexico the murder rate was really spiralling. It almost doubled in the space of just two years. And so quite quickly I found that this was really the subject that people wanted to talk about. You know, you'd go to interviews or parties or business roundtables or whatever, and quickly you found that the subject very often returned to this subject of, of the drugs business. And so I started writing a lot more about it than I had expected. And I got into this habit of doing, uh, you know, business stories one week and drug stories the next week. And the more I did this, the more I did the two, the more I came to see that actually the two weren't quite as different as you might think. And I began to wonder if actually the drug story was, in fact, a, a big business and economic story that we'd been missing. So I started to try and think about it in those terms. And I'll give you an example of this. Soon after I got there in, in 2010, there was this extraordinary case where the Mexican government discovered a gigantic cache of marijuana near Tijuana. It was the biggest seizure in Mexico's history. It was more than 100 tons of the stuff that they found in a, a warehouse on the edge of the city. And so they got all this stuff, they got all the marijuana, they unpacked it, and they made a gigantic bonfire out of the stuff, doused it with gasoline and set the thing alight. And it was an incredible sight that the police were there having to make sure that no one was standing downwind of this big fire, because... <laughs> It was like a 100-ton joint. And anyway, <laughs> it was smouldering away, and I was marvelling at this and, and wondering quite what this meant for organised crime. And it was widely reported at the time that this represented um, a blow against organised crime to the tune of about half a billion dollars. That was how much this particular seizure was valued at. And I gave this some thought, and it, it seemed to me, you know, implausibly high, because there aren't many companies in the world that can withstand a, a shock of half a billion dollars. And the cartels, you know, they're big, but they're not, not that big. So I started looking into it a bit more and, and tried to look at how this estimate had come about. And it was fairly straightforward. It, it sounds very kind of sensible. They'd, all they'd done, they'd figured out the, the rough retail price of marijuana in the States, because that's where these drugs were heading, and they'd conservatively estimated that it's worth maybe $5 a gram in the United States. And then they'd multiplied that out over 100 tonnes and arrived at this figure of half a billion. And it sounds plausible at first, but if you give it a moment's thought and apply it to any other ordinary business, you can see immediately how insane this is. Imagine if you tried to do this with another product like coffee, for instance, and you said, OK, well, the retail price of a cup of coffee in the United States in Starbucks is 
what is it, three, four dollars, something like that. And in that cup, you get perhaps two grams of coffee. So maybe coffee costs a couple of dollars per gram. So that means that a kilo of coffee seized in Mexico must be worth $2,000. Obviously not the case, right? Or imagine trying to calculate the, you know, the price of a cow using the price of a steak in Washington, D.C. You'd get a very weird figure. And this is exactly what we're doing. And so I, I did a sort of rough calculation of what I thought this marijuana seizure should really be worth using wholesale prices in Mexico, which, needless to say, are much, much lower. The wholesale price of marijuana in Mexico is maybe about $0.08 cents per gram. So those 100 tons are probably worth somewhere a bit less than $10 million rather than the $500 million that we were told. And so this, this kind of shocked me. It made me think, well, you know, if, if, in fact, what we're doing on the supply side of the business is sometimes about 98% less effective than we believe, then what else are we getting wrong? And this was when I started to really think seriously about looking at this business as a business rather than as a sort of uh, a war. And in so doing, I identified that the cartels are more closely resemble businesses than you might think in, in various ways. And I spell these out in the book. For instance, the cartels take part in things like franchising their brand. That's the way that the Zetas have spread very quickly in Mexico. They're very concerned with things like public relations. And I was told that while I was in Ciudad Juarez, somebody told me to avoid, if I could, going outside at quarter to six, because that, they said, was the time when many of the cartels timed their assassinations in order to lead the six o'clock news bulletins. And they even get into things like online retailing. We're seeing now with um, sites like the Silk Road and its various successors that the cartels and and dealers in the rich world are are experimenting with e-commerce. So I looked at all these things and I I lay these out in the book. Um, And I'll just, I'll kind of highlight a couple now because I realise we're short of time this afternoon. But one of the ones that I thought was most interesting and most important was this question of how it seems to me that we very often focus very much on the supply side of this business rather than the demand side. And to give an example of this, look at the cocaine business. I went down to Bolivia in the course of researching this book to look at the the cocaine business there. All of the world's cocaine originates in just three countries in the Andes. It comes from Bolivia, Colombia, and Peru. And so I went down there to have a look at what was going on. And the cocaine business, I think, represents a particular puzzle for economists because The idea is is fairly straightforward. The idea is to try to cut into supply, because if you restrict supply and demand remains constant, then you'd expect the price to increase, right? It's fairly straightforward. And if the price goes up, you'd expect people to consume less of it. And yet that doesn't seem to be what has happened. If you look back over the past couple of decades, efforts to cut into supply have actually been quite successful. The governments of those three countries, Colombia, Bolivia and Peru, have managed to eradicate very large quantities of of coca leaf, which is the stuff that you need to make cocaine. These days, every year, they eradicate an area about the same size as, well, it's about 14 times the size of Manhattan, for instance. And this is an impressive thing. I mean, they have to do this while watching out for landmines, while being shot at. It's, It's an incredible feat that they do. And yet for all this, if you look at the price of cocaine, the retail price in the United States, it's hardly budged. If you go back a couple of decades... All that time, it's remained around $150 per pure gram. It moves around a bit, but hasn't really changed much. So this is, you know, something of a puzzle. How has this happened? So I went there and had a look, and I think there are a couple of things to to bear in mind there. One thing that it seems to me that's happening in South America is that you see a, a sort of Walmart effect, if you like. And it's important to make clear that, you know, Walmart here is not accused of any wrongdoing and, and so on. Um, 
But you do, you do see something similar to what people sometimes accuse Walmart of doing, which is acting as a sort of monopsony buyer. In other words, it's a monopoly buyer of some of these products. So the idea is that if you picture a, a regular market for something like apples, the idea is that in some of those markets, Walmart is such a dominant buyer that even if there's an interruption to supply, and you would normally expect farmers to raise their price as a result of that, Walmart has such a dominant position that it's able to say, well, sorry, guys, you know, we're the main buyer around here we're going to set the price and it's not going to go any higher. And it seems as if actually something very similar is happening in some parts of South America in the cocaine business. You find that in some areas where coca leaf is grown, you have one cartel, it could be a Mexican cartel or it could be an armed group like the FARC in Colombia, which has effectively a monopsony buying position of the coca leaf in the area. And so they say, well, sorry, this is the price. And even if supply is interrupted, that's the price they continue to pay. And so those efforts to interrupt supply it's not that they have no effect at all it's that they're affecting the wrong people it seems rather than affecting the cartels or affecting the consumers in the united states or in europe they're affecting the farmers who grow the stuff and those are you know really the people who were probably least interested in in harming they're regular farmers who exist sometimes on about a dollar a day and, and those are the people who seem to be bearing the brunt of all these exercises there's a second point here on the supply business and i think the, sort of, the economics suggest that even if you were able to increase the price of coca leaf, which it seems has been extremely difficult, even if you were able to increase it, there's very little reason to think that it would have much of an impact on the retail price in the rich world. And to explain how this happens, I'll give you a few numbers. To make a kilo of cocaine, you need about a ton of fresh coca leaf. It weighs less once you've dried it out, but it starts off weighing about a ton. And in Colombia, that ton of fresh leaf is worth about four or $500. Now, the kilo of pure cocaine, by the time it makes it to the United States and is sold in, in tiny quantities, is worth about $150,000. So imagine what happens. Even if you're very, very effective in raising the price of coca leaf, let's say you double it from $400 to $800. Now let's say you manage to push all of that extra cost onto the consumer in the United States. All you're going to do is raise the price of that kilo from 150,000 to 150,400. Or to look at it on the per gram level, you're going to raise the price of a gram by 40 cents. And that's what you get if you're incredibly effective in doubling the price of coca leaf. And I sometimes, in the book, I use the example of the art business and say it's rather like saying, okay, we want to try and raise the price of uh, works of art. And the main ingredient in a painting is paint. And so we're going to try and raise the price of a box of paints and you can see this isn't going to be very effective. Imagine you know, a box of paints costs $50, we raise it to $100. What's that going to do to the price of a million-dollar painting? Nothing. And I think that's rather what we're doing in, in the cocoa business. So that was one thing that caught my attention. Another one, just to highlight one other thing, is the, um, the business of human resources. And that might not sound like the kind of thing that cartel people would be particularly concerned about, but it actually is. And I saw this when I went to interview the head of one of the big gangs in El Salvador. There are two big gangs in, in Central America based in El Salvador, um, Barrio de Asiocho, or the 18th Street Gang, and the Mara Salvatrucha. And I went to see the head of the 18th Street Gang, a, a guy named Carlos Mojica, who is currently in jail in a prison on the outskirts of San Salvador. And we sat down and we started talking about business. And his human resources problem is a serious one. If you... Picture these groups. Let's give you an idea of the size of them. These two groups together 
throughout Central America are reckoned to have about 70,000 members. So just for comparison's sake, that's about the number of people employed by General Motors in the United States. So they're fairly big organizations. And managing these guys is, is difficult, though not least because he's in prison. Um, but organized crime groups in particular have two unique problems that affect them. One is that, of course, they have a very, very rapid turnover of their members of staff. And part of this is due to the very high rates of violence in those parts of the world. And those who aren't murdered are very often arrested. And there's an example that I read from the, um, the business of trafficking cocaine from the Caribbean to the UK. Um, about one in four of the cocaine mules on that route get arrested. And I was thinking, imagine trying to run a business, imagine trying to run a, a newspaper or a think tank or any other business in which a quarter of your staff had to be replaced with every transaction you made. It's, it's a real problem. And of course, this problem is compounded by the fact that organized criminal groups can't just advertise for new people. They can't place an ad in the paper. They can't look on LinkedIn. You know, Getting new people is, is a real problem for them. But fortunately for them, we've come up with the perfect solution to this, and we call it prison. It's this place where we helpfully get together all of the unemployed young men with criminal records. We put them in one place. We lock them in there for a few years. And in this jail that I visited in El Salvador, if you weren't a member of Carlos Mojica's gang when you went in, then you certainly were by the time you left. And again and again, we see examples of prisons being used as these sort of universities of crime. And for those of you who are watching Netflix, uh, watching Narcos on Netflix, you, you'll have come across this guy named Carlos Leda, who has a claim to be the person who introduced cocaine to the United States. And his cocaine trafficking career began when, by chance, he was put in a jail cell in Connecticut with a guy named George Young. And it was a perfect match. George Young was in there for trafficking marijuana by plane. Carlos Leda had contacts in Colombia. And the rest is history. They began trafficking cocaine in by plane, and, and America got its addiction. And so this is how prisons help cartels with this human resources problem. And I thought this was kind of interesting, partly because, of course, it helps the cartels no end if they're able to expand quickly by recruiting through jails, but also because I think it risks having quite a big impact on the extent to which they're willing to use violence. And if you think about it, the, a gang like Carlos Mojica's gang is far more likely to resort to violence, to send its employees out to kill and be killed, if it's easy for them to replace them. And to sort of test this idea, I decided to look at another part of the world where the situation is rather different. And I looked at a study that was done in Europe for the European Commission a few years ago. Really interesting study of what happens when cocaine deals go wrong. And it's this great study where they look at about 30 really big cocaine deals worth, uh, each one was at least 20 kilos, some were several tons. So we're talking about often multi-million dollar deals. And they looked at these, and the, the, the ways in which these deals go wrong are sometimes hilarious. One went wrong because details of the operation were faxed to the wrong number. Another went wrong because um, a consignment of cocaine was meant to be picked up from the hull of a ship, but the diver who was meant to pick it up got seasick during the operation and had to call it off. And you, you'd expect, you know, watching, you know, if you watch Narcos or Breaking Bad or something, you'd expect mistakes like that to be punished fairly harshly. You know, you'd expect a pretty violent revenge to be taken. And yet what this paper found was that actually in two-thirds of those cases, the, the problem, which often was worth millions of dollars, was resolved without the use of violence. And what this paper concluded was that in Europe, in the Netherlands, the costs of replacing members of staff and finding new contacts, if you burn particular contacts, was so high that more often than not, for the organised crime groups in general, it made more sense to resolve the matter without resorting to violence. 
In other words, the, the labor market, if you like, was tighter in, in El Salvador, where it's very easy to recruit people from prison. You've got a very slack labor market, and so organized crime groups don't need to worry too much about how they treat their employees. If you have a tighter labor market by perhaps sending fewer people to prison in the first place and running those prisons better, then the cartels face a much higher cost in replacing people, and the evidence seems to be that they're therefore less likely to use violence. Anyway, I think I'm just about coming to the end of my allocated slot, so I'll leave it there, but there's lots more to be discussed, and I look forward to all your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Our next speaker is uh, Moises Naim. Uh, he's a distinguished fellow at Carnegie's Endowment for International Peace, an international syndicated columnist, and a contributor editor to The Atlantic. He's also the host and producer of Efecto Naim, a weekly television program on international affairs that airs throughout the Americas. Naim was the editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine for 40 years, and is the author of many scholarly articles and more than 10 books on international economics and politics. His most recent book, The End of Power, a New York Times bestseller, was selected by the Washington Post and the Financial Times as one of the best books of the year. He's also the author of Illicit. Naim has served as Venezuela's Minister of Trade and Industry, not in the previous government, not in the current government, I might, I might add. <laughs> director of Venezuela's Central Bank and Executive Director of the World Bank. He's also a board member of some of the world's largest corporations and philanthropic foundations. He holds an, a master's and PhD degrees from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Please help me welcome Monsieur Naim. <laughs> Thank you very much. And uh, I, I read almost um, everything, I think, uh, that is published on the subjects of uh, trafficking and illicit uh, trafficking of all kinds and drugs. And I have to tell you that this is one of the best books I have read in years. And I strongly recommend it. Uh, it is uh, first because it breaks uh, one of the patterns that one discovers in this thing. And what that is that. Those that know don't write books, and those that write oh, very often don't know what they're talking about. Um, Tom uh, is a reporter uh, and is a thinker, and that is a very rare uh, combination of, uh, you know, thinkers tend, to stay, <laughs> thinkers tend to stay at home and meditate and think uh, great thoughts, and reporters just go and report, and, and that's it. He does more than that. He reports. He observes, he collects data, and then he is able to put it in a context that has a framework that is larger than just uh, reporting. So um, the, other, the other thing that makes this book unique is that, debate, that the debate about drugs and drugs trafficking has been dominated by law enforcement, by doctors, by physicians, uh, lawyers, uh, and the like. Most, more recently, we had uh, we welcomed the arrival of the economists to the conversation. People that try to say, well, after all, these are markets, and why don't we then use some of the tools that you we rely on to understand markets and regulatory frameworks and all that to try to um, do a better job on, on dealing with this scourge, which is it is a scourge and it is a threat. Uh, and, but we haven't had uh, something like this book uh, that essentially takes all of the common, if, if you look at the table of contents, it looks, it, it reads like uh, the syllables of a course at a Harvard Business School 
or any of the of the business schools as an MBA kind of thing, and then, you know he talks about human resource management and outsourcing and uh, corporate social responsibility, and uh, you know uh, he goes down the the the, the items, uh, the subjects that are normally taught at a business schools, and then he says, well, let's look how cartels use these things, and let's then use that to 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 come up with good ideas about what to do with this. And I think his presentation was very revealing on some of the distortions, uh, pitfalls, self-inflicted wounds created by the war on drugs. Um, this long preface is just uh, uh, my way of setting the stage to criticize the book. Um, it is a very good book, but I, I think it's going to be more fun for you and more intellectually uh, interesting and engaging if I'll tell you some of the things about the book uh, that I think are worth uh, debating. Uh, the first one, and, and a very interesting uh, omission, I think, is if you look at the table of uh, at the index, there are three words that you will not find. One is money, the second is finance, and the third is laundering, like as of money laundering. Uh, he, of course, talks about that, uh, but uh, I would have loved to have a chapter about finance. You know, how did, do these people manage their money? And by that, I mean not just financially, but logistically. We're talking about containers full of dollar bills. What do you do with that? You know, you, you are somewhere in Mexico and you receive a container. And the container is full of, you know, it's piles and piles of cash. What do you do with that? Well, you try to launder it. You try to inject it into the formal financial system and make it more usable. And you pay a fee for that. And that is a side industry connected to the vertical integration of uh, the, the drug industry that is very lucrative, is huge, is important, and is very sophisticated. In recent years, that industry has had two major disruptions. One is Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden and the second is comes from Wall Street. The Osama, Osama bin Laden distortion of financial markets came after 9-11. And it became clear that one of the main tools to, to do the war on terror was to chase the money. So go after the money became an important strategy for those where, you know, for, for people fighting. The, the, you know, if, you, if you understand where, what are the sources of funding of these terrorist networks, you can get to them. So they created a very significant uh, um, anti-money laundering regime in the world that created all sorts of conditions, restrictions, uh, and, and requirements for banks and financial institutions on how to deal with uh, money and money transfers and moving money around the world. And that, of course, had as a collateral damage the narco-traffickers and the money launderers that had nothing to do and wanted nothing to do with terrorism because the last thing, if you're running a drug cartel, the last thing you want is to, you know, to have also the problem of dealing with the anti-terrorist forces in the world. You, are, you have enough with the Drug Enforcement Administration and the local police. You don't want to bring in the others. So you know, it's, there are very important material incentives to keep, to keep a distance from traffickers and terrorists. Uh, but that created then uh, a very important new challenge for uh, people uh, in the cartels or that were servicing the cartels with the money laundering uh, uh, operations. But they, they had another uh, disruption that came in the form of financial derivatives. 
there is a whole slew of new instruments uh, uh, available that started to emerge in the, uh, in the 90s and became quite uh, significant uh, um, in, in later years. That is a very sophisticated uh, financial instruments that were suddenly available uh, for, for the cartels that, you know, is not that they solved the problem, but they created new options if you wanted to launder money. So that's uh, one of the points that I wanted to, to raise. The other that is not in the book is um, what, what has to do with lobbying. Uh, Tom has a wonderful, wonderful, and very engaging chapter on corporate social responsibility and how, uh, if you run a cartel, you better spend some money buying the goodwill of the communities in which you operate, uh, in which you become seen not as a, as a terrible killer, but also someone that con you know, builds you know, soccer, uh, finances soccer teams and builds a sports stadium and funds churches and, and gives money away to friends and families and, you know, uh, and, and we have seen, for example, uh, the reactions when, when Pablo Escobar was killed. Uh, people in, Medi in, in Medellin came out uh, in, uh, uh, and, you know, lamenting uh, because Pablo Escobar and his cartel were important donors to the community. So it makes sense that corporate social responsibility, which is essentially making a financial and, uh, and other kinds of effort to, to, to gain the, the, the trust and the sympathy and the support of, of the EU community is something that corporations do uh, and, and drug cartels do. But what else do uh, highly regulated corporations around the world absolutely do? They lobby governments. They influence the regulatory systems. So this is the, one of the most regulated uh, uh, industries in the world. In fact, is so regulated that it's prohibited. But at the same time, it is one of the most, most lucrative uh, cash-rich uh, operation in the world. So why not assume that like electricity companies and banks uh, and telephone companies and all kinds of you know, oil companies, uh, they all spend a chunk of their revenues in, uh, they invest it in influencing governments, in influencing uh, re regulators, in buying regulators, in, in, in trying to steer the regulatory system in, on, on, in, in their favor. So why not assume that drug cartels will do exactly the same? And they do. And that is why we see their presence in elections. That's why we see uh, you know, drug in politics in big time everywhere. That's why we see uh, regulators that are uh, either coerced uh, or bribed uh, or incentivated uh, to look elsewhere uh, in, the, in, the, in, in the attempts to curb and contain the cartels. That is another very important area that has even larger consequences uh, than the damage that drugs do to, to the users. In fact, you could argue that uh, the, the, drug, the drug use uh, affects, uh, of course, affects the users um, and it's harmful to, the, to their health. But you could also argue that it's harmful to, for democracy and for society. That even those of us that don't do drugs or are not actively uh, engaged in these things are suffering the consequences of the way in which the war on drugs is being fought. 
because it's distorting uh, democracy, it's interfering in politics, it's corrupting uh, governments, and it's creating all kinds of conditions that affect all of us. And so understanding that from this perspective is very important, and that is one of the, also, the very useful contributions of uh, Tom and his book. Thank you very much. Do you want to say something? I, yeah, I mean, I, I can respond to that, or I can take questions. Shall I give a very quick... If you want to respond something... Uh, yeah, no, I mean, just, just very quickly. I'd, I'd like to hear other people's questions, but... Um, I think, first of all, Moises is, is right. The money laundering is something that there could be more on. And if I get a chance to do a second edition of the book, then uh, there could be some more in that. In the meantime, I can advertise there's a, a great book available called Illicit by Moises Naim, which, uh, <laughs> which covers this stuff uh, very, very well. Um, on the lobbying, the, I, I think that it's a very, very important part of it. And I, I cover some of that in, there's a chapter on uh, the way in which the cartels are offshoring. And you see this, I mean, just like ordinary companies are, are moving to countries like uh, countries in Central America where wages are lower on the whole even than in Mexico, um, it, you're seeing similar things going on in the cartel business. So cartels like the Setas and the Sinaloa cartel are setting up operations in countries like Guatemala and Honduras. Um, and the... I think lobbying is is part of that, really. I mean, the you know where you know the expression "banana republic" originally Honduras was the original banana republic, and the expression comes from the fact that the American fruit companies were so easily able to lobby the government there that people said, actually, you know, the, these companies are the ones that really run the place. It's, it's literally a banana republic. And now I think you're seeing something similar. The drug cartels are finding that they, in the same way are able to lobby some of these governments very easily because the institutional capacity in these countries is is really very low in some cases. I, some of them make Mexico look like a, a strong state by comparison. Um, and so you, you do see a lot of this lobbying. And I, I think really the, uh, you know, the, the name that the cartels use for lobbying is, is corruption. That's really what they're doing when they corrupt people. Um, but sorry, over to you. Uh, do, do go ahead. That's okay. By the way, uh, Tom's book was reviewed today in the Wall Street Journal, if you want to check that uh, too. We're going to open the floor for questions. Uh, please raise your hand, uh, wait to be called on, um, identify yourself, and keep it short. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to start over here. Wait for the mic. Good afternoon. Thank you uh, for, for your time and your insight. Uh, big fan of all of your work and a big fan of the NPR interview you did a couple of weeks ago as well. Um, my name is David Medina and I'm uh, finishing up my master's in international security at GW. I'm originally from Medellin, Colombia, so I've seen a lot of this firsthand growing up and I've also seen it on the streets here of uh, the United States. My question to you, uh, to, to the both of you actually is, is what type of business ac acumen are you seeing at the corporate levels of these contemporary cartels and organized criminal groups? Are you seeing individuals who have MBAs, masters, or PhD, high level of education, uh, in order to be able to create these sophisticated networks of trafficking and laundering? Okay, I'll go first. Um, in my experience, not not so much. I mean, the question of you know, do do you find cartel people with MBAs um, 
on the whole, not. I, there's, I, I remember one trafficker, I can't remember who he was, but there was one Mexican trafficker who, you know, as you know, they all have these nicknames, and there was one who I think was known as El Licenciado because he was, you know, relatively, you know, had a high level of education. Um, but generally, generally not. Um, the way that they work is is pretty sophisticated, though. Um, the, the kind of tricks of the trade that they've learned mimic those of ordinary successful businesses. I, I mean, although I make these analogies in the book with ordinary firms like Walmart and Amazon.com and so on, I, I don't get the impression that the cartel people are consciously looking at firms like that and saying, you know, let's let's do what they do. But I think the same kind of business logic has driven them to the same strategies. So that that's how the sort of mechanism works. Um, and I, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. Um, there was another another part to your question, I think. Where are they I suppose it's just the logic of the market, really. I mean, what what makes a company successful is is the same as what makes a cartel successful, and so I suppose that's why, on the whole, you find that the successful cartels are the ones that mimic the tactics of successful firms. Yeah, very very quickly. Um, there are two generations, I think, that one needs to understand. There were the visionaries. Uh, and Pablo Escobar was one. He was the one. And later, uh, that Tom uh, mentioned. Uh, these are people that were early on. These were uh, people, people that understood uh, sooner than anybody else the opportunities created by globalization and technology and, and, and open markets. And, uh, and they created very sophisticated uh, business operations without a lot of training. They were instinctual uh, entrepreneurs, but they were visionaries. Uh, then what happened, when, especially in Mexico in recent years when Tom was there, was that the war against the cartels essentially hit all of the uh, leaders. And uh, the power then was transferred, was fragmented to a second, third generation, to you know, second and the third uh, uh, layers of, of the hierarchy there. And the new guys are far more, um, uh, far more crazy, uh, far more um, operational. Uh, and um, so that there is a deterioration uh, in the quality of the top management because there's a fragmentation. Uh, of the you know the big cartels usually break up in in many mini cartels run by mini leaders that are far more limited in their vision and and and, and skills and far more violent uh, than their predecessors and less strategic so and in terms of skills and higher education requirements that you mentioned they may not have it but they do hire them they usually have pretty good lawyers uh, they usually have pretty good people uh, on technology and communications. They are able. Um, when I did elicit, I interviewed uh, some of the you know people in, 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 that were trying to get them, and they complained that they had more sophisticated encryption technologies and, and IT technologies, and that the use of the internet was far advanced, uh, more advanced, and more modern and sophisticated than what the law enforcement uh, organizations had. They also have uh, very good uh, money people. They, 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 but again, these are ma you may say they are not members of the cartel. They are just service providers. Here. Hi, my name is Sergio Guzman. I'm also Colombian. I'm also a master's student at SAIS. Uh, there seems to be a moment of catharsis, a catharsis when a Latin American 
president becomes a Latin American ex-president, or a secretary general of the OAS becomes an ex-secretary general of the OAS, that they suddenly see the light. And they're, we need to work on this, and this becomes my life's resolve now. What's your comment on that? Why aren't acting public figures and public servants more active on this issue? You're talking about the issue of legalization, presumably, yeah. I, well, w one thing actually I, that's changing, I think, is that we are starting to see a few more sitting presidents speaking out more about this. I mean, recently you've had the example of um, Otto Perez Molina in Guatemala, no longer such a great example, perhaps, um, <laughs> given what's happened to him. But, you know, he, he was a, a, a pre president in office who very clearly said that legalization is what we need to do. And people were stunned by that. You know, he'd run on this campaign of Mano Dura and got into office and said, actually, look, I, you know, I've spent my career in the armed forces destroying these fields of uh, opium poppies only to see them grow back the next season and, and it's not working and we need to change this. So you see people like him, you see people like Santos in Colombia, a much more important example, I think, and a handful of others. Um, but otherwise, why? I mean, I think... The, the, the reason really is that the, the penalties for people in office who talk about this on the whole are, are too great. It, on the whole, you're, you're going to invite the sort of disapproval of important allies such as the United States and, and you're probably not going to get very far. I, what's changing now, I think, actually, and this seems to be changing things quite a lot, is the way in which the United States is, excel, is itself experimenting with legalization in those four states that have legalized marijuana. I think that has given a sort of license, if you like, to other countries to go ahead and, and be more explicit about this. I think if it hadn't been for the great experiment with marijuana here, with both medical marijuana and, and now the recreational sort, it would have been much harder for a country like Uruguay or a country like Jamaica to go ahead and, and do the same thing. I mean, if you look at what someone like William Brownfield says, you know, the, the guy at the State Department with responsibility for this stuff, what he says about a country like Jamaica saying it wants to go ahead and legalize ganja, he kind of says, oh, well, it's, you know, it's, it's their, their issue and the conventions are, have to be flexibly interpreted and very, very different message from what we would have heard 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. So I think that's opened up a big, big space and, and we may, you're right, that there does seem to be this incredible moment where you leave office and then suddenly you understand. But I, I think actually we may see a change on that front and we may see more sitting presidents and prime ministers speaking out and, and being, you know, pushing the issue a bit harder. Yeah, I think Tom is ex exactly right. Uh, um, essentially, the answer, the short answer to your question, uh, Edwin, is that the prohibition to smoke led to the prohibition to think. For, you know, the, the re prohibition regime created a, a, a culture and a narrative that essentially said, if you are not for prohibition, you must be in favor of total legalization. And that means that you're in the pocket of the narco-traffickers or you're soft on crime or you are uh, not to be trusted as, as a leader. I'm talking about politicians. Um, I was a member uh, of a, a commission called the Commission for Drugs and Democracy in Latin America that, that included presidents Cardoso from Brazil, Cedillo from Mexico, Gaviria from Colombia, Lagos from Chile, and uh, people like me. Uh, um, there were 18 of us and we spent a couple of years talking to everybody, uh, you know, law enforcement types and, and doctors and um, all kinds of people. 
And we came out uh, with a strong report uh, uh, recommending the legalization of marijuana. But mostly what we felt was that it, there was a need to create a space between total prohibition and total legalization. I don't think anybody seriously can argue that everything, every drug for everyone at every time uh, should be legalized. That would be you know, an extreme uh, position that I don't think is viable nor sensitive, sensible. But I do think that there, there are spaces between total prohibition and total legalization that need to be explored and then see what happens and use the results of that social experiment to adjust uh, policies, which I think uh, it is also what Tom uh, suggests in his piece, in his cover story in the, in the Economist. But the story here is one that one needs to create, and the purpose also was to create a safe space for politicians to talk openly about the possibility of not being for prohibition. Um, and, and you know, because if you are a politician somewhere, and, and you know, I interviewed a lot of people in Congress here, and they all agreed that the war on drugs, you know, you had this very strange situation in which everybody agreed that the war on drugs was failing, but it could not be changed. Which was a very un-American kind of thing, you know, because you know, this is the can-do country, pragmatic, pragmatic and you know yet you yes the senators would tell you yes this thing is not working but we cannot change it because the politics are not there well as tom said the politics have moved and now uh, uh, it is safer for politicians to express doubts about uh, uh, prohibition yeah um, we're going to have one question over there thank you my name is Lina. I'm a graduate student at the Security Studies program in Georgetown, also Colombian. Um, <laughs> I have quite the eye for Colombians. Um, I was wondering. I wanted to. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on how do you see these similarities uh, between illegal enterprises and drug cartels under the lens of other violent non-state actors, particularly insurgencies. Thank you. Can I, sorry, I, I just want to make sure I understand the question exactly. The, how I see the, the similarities between the cartels and companies, but under the, through the lens of non-state. Sorry, I, I didn't quite get what you were getting at, sorry. Um, the, you, you trace some similarities between legal enterprises and drug cartels. Yeah. How, how do you see this same relation or, yeah, between um, legal enterprises and insurgencies? Like the FARC. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I see what you mean. Um, let's see. The, I mean, the FARC is a, is a good example, partly, you know, not least because they're heavily involved in the drugs business themselves. I mean, you can see, uh, to give another example that has been in the news a lot recently, the um, so-called Islamic States uh, has taken on some of the functions of ordinary companies. It, it supposedly is involved in a big way in the oil industry. They've been trading in uh, antiquities stolen from places like Iraq. Um, and so they're using sort of ordinary business tactics in that way. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples. I mean, it's people often talk about uh, the the way in which um, Islamist terrorist groups have used social media in in ways which mimic companies in very professional-looking ways to try to gather support online through um, sources like Twitter and Facebook and so on. And and there's something almost company-like about the way that 
some of them organize themselves and, and do their recruiting. So I suppose, I mean, it's in a way, it's maybe it's a subject for a, you know, a follow-up book, but the, the, the idea of um, using business analysis to look at non-conventional types of organizations might be one that you could apply there too. I, I don't feel I know enough about either the FARC or about Islamism really to push it much further, but I imagine you could probably extend examples in, in a similar way, yeah. I wanted to pick on what Moises recently said. Do you believe that all drugs should be legalized or do you have some concerns about a particular substance out there that shouldn't be legalized? It's a really good question. It's a question that we tried to get to the bottom of in, in the recent Economist cover story that you mentioned. The, I, I mean, the, the position of The Economist, and I think on balance my position, is that probably all mainstream drugs would fare better if they were regulated by, by doctors rather than by the mafia. Um, there's a, <laughs> I, I, if there's one place in America where it's safe to say that, it's the Cato Institute. I know. <laughs> I'm probably preaching to the converted here. Um, but I mean, I think it's important to make the case that, you know, when you talk about legalization, you're not always necessarily talking about a total free-for-all. And if you look at the way that they've legalized heroin in Switzerland, for instance, it's, it's a very sort of restricted form of legalization run by doctors. Um, I think, though, it's, it's worth sort of making clear that when you, when you really get down to the detail of legalizing and regulating a drug, even like marijuana, which is a relatively safe one, you do have to make some quite difficult decisions about what you're going to prohibit. And just to give a totally sort of uncontroversial example, which I expect e even the most sort of hardcore libertarians would agree with, most people, I think, would agree with the continuing prohibition of marijuana for children, right? I mean whether it's under 21s, under 18s, you know, whatever you like. And there's also, uh, now that marijuana is being legalized, there are questions being asked about whether, for instance, edibles should be legal or whether concentrates should be legal. And I, this does raise an interesting question for me because the, as far as I'm concerned, one of the big reasons for legalizing drugs, whether it's marijuana or cocaine or anything else, is that you take the market away from organized crime. And in the case of the edibles market, you're not really doing that. You've, you're actually creating a, a new market that didn't really exist before. The Sinaloa cartel does not sell hash brownies. You know, <laughs> you go to Colorado and you go to the shops there and, and the legal entrepreneurs there have, have done just what the market does. They've come up with a whole range of very good, very appealing products, drinks, sweets, you know, you name it. Um, and th I think this is a bit of a worry, actually, um, and that within the legalization movement now, I think there's a political argument brewing because the argument for legalization is, is made up of this quite strange alliance of, you know, real libertarians and real conservatives. A lot of the people who want to legalize drugs are former police officers, you know, people like President Perez Molina, who just see it as a more effective way of regulating them. Not, you know, they don't particularly think that it's everybody's right to do what they like with their body, blah, blah, blah. That, you know, they see this as a way of getting drugs under control. And if it's just a question of arguing that legalization is better than prohibition, these two sides can get along quite happily. But when you come down to a situation like in Colorado and you're discussing, should you tax it quite high to dissuade consumption? Should you tax it low to kill the black market? Should you allow edibles? Should you allow concentrates? These two sides, which so far have been allied, are going to find themselves on opposite sides of the argument. And we don't yet know what's going to happen. And it seems as though in Colorado, it's you know relatively libertarian. In Uruguay, it seems relatively conservative. And I'm really interested to see what's going to happen in places like Canada, which I think are probably going to set the rules that one day we're going to follow ourselves in, in the UK and elsewhere.
So that's, that's the interesting question for me. I'm going to do some market research here. How many of you have been in a uh, marijuana shop in Colorado? Don't worry, the cameras are not on you. <laughs> All right. Uh, Don Moses, you want to follow up on that. Which, which substances do you think shouldn't be legal? Again, I, I think the question, th that is the exact question that we shouldn't ask, be asking. I think uh, when we say legal or not legal, we need to think about what are the details. The devil is in the details here. It has to do with how and who and uh, what are the regulatory systems. Is, is what Tom said. Uh, uh, you know, there are, there are many, many uh, answers that needs to, that, 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 that questions that need to be answered before uh, answering. One could easily say, well, marijuana is relatively easy, uh, but what about crack? You know, and, and, and how do you do that? Are you really ready to legalize crack? And how you do that? And how do you distribute it? And, and who is in charge? Which doctors uh, you know, are going to be in charge of prescribing uh, crack cocaine? Uh, so, you know, the question, and, and that is something that we fought very hard in that commission, the question should never be legalized or not legalized, prohibition or legalization. That models the conversation. That inhibits the ability of, of the society to, to experiment and learn, uh, to find middle grounds, to understand uh, what can be tested and tried and perhaps adjusted. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I'll stay away from ge generic sweeping, you know, everything has to be legalized all the time, you know. It won't work. All right. Uh, we're going to continue. The gentleman here. And, and then you. Yeah. Uh, hi. Bruce Levinson, the Center for Regulatory Effectiveness. The discussion so far today has all focused on illegal agricultural substances. But the federal government may now be embarking on a, on a very different sort of experiment making a popular legal agricultural substance illegal, uh, which would be menthol-flavored cigarettes. A ban on those has been enacted in some place and is uh, around the world and is currently under consideration in the US. Uh, could you, both of you, please speculate on how you think the markets, the illicit markets and so forth, would respond in event of such a ban? Good question. I, I suppose. A priori, you'd expect that when you buy something, uh, when you ban something, you will immediately create an illegal market for it of, of some sort. Menthol cigarettes are banned where I come from in, in Europe. They've been banned for a while, along with any other flavor of cigarettes. And as far as I know, there, there actually hasn't been an explosion in, in you know, illegal menthol cigarettes. It seems to be something that's been phased out relatively straightforwardly. The idea behind the ban is that flavoured cigarettes are more likely to appeal to children. Um, and there's a similar debate underway, you know, that I read the other day recently in Australia, there's been a ban on um, those kind of vodka uh, jelly things that you can buy, you know, uh, for the same reason, you know, they, they look nice, they appeal to children, uh, but they're not for children. Um, and I... I feel, you know, and here I realise I probably part company from some people at Cato, but I don't feel too bad about bans of that sort, actually. I, I'm in favour of legalising drugs, and, but I, I think once legalised, part of the benefit of legalisation is that it gives you the ability to, to sort of shape exactly what kind of market you have. And flavoured you know, flavored cigarettes, sweets with alcohol in them, those are things that I, you know, I, I, I don't particularly have a civil liberties problem with those 
being banned. Um, but what, I'll tell you what does seem odd to me at the moment, which is, is the fact that in the United States, in many ways, the cigarette industry is facing stronger restrictions than the marijuana industry, not least in the business of advertising. If you go to Colorado, you actually see more ads for marijuana than you do for tobacco. And it's because there's this agreement um, that the tobacco companies reached a, a decade or two ago that they would uh, stop most of their advertising. Marijuana companies, on the other hand, have their um, constitutional right to free speech, and so they use it. And it, there's an odd sort of contrast there in which this you know, new drug, which is still banned in many states, marijuana, um, is more lightly regulated in Colorado than, than tobacco even. And you get, you know cannabis gummy bears in Colorado and and yet you soon might not have menthol cigarettes so there is a weird kind of inconsistency there but I having been there recently myself I'm kind of edging towards the the more sort of conservative side of the legalizing spectrum if you like that's kind of where I find myself Um, and so clampdowns on things like flavored cigarettes don't don't really bother me but I you know I I can see there is a strong argument on the other side and I I respect it Um, but I, th- I think marijuana regulators are probably going to start looking at things like cigarettes and alcohol and, and saying, you know, if, if we do that to cigarettes, why don't we do it to marijuana? The gent over there. Thank you very much. I'm Joe Kassman. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer with the State Department, and I spent about 20 years in Latin America, a um, great deal of that time in Colombia and Venezuela and Ecuador. And... I just wanted to make one observation, and that is that uh, the current the prohibition paradigm really created two industries, and uh, one, of course, is the illicit one, but the other is the uh, the uh, uh, police prison enforcement side of, and and that industry depends on the other. If you if you move towards more of a legalization, there will be pushback, I believe, from every everybody who depends on massive amounts of U.S. and other assistance uh, to support their police agencies. You have a pr- uh, for-profit prison industry in the United States that depends on the supply of, of uh, people being arrested for drugs that... Um, <clears throat> for cons- uh, consuming drugs. What is your comment on that, on the fact that you've, these parallel uh, industries that depend on each other benefit from the status quo and would and both of them would push back against any legalization? It's a good point, and I, I think one of the appealing things to many people about legalization is that it, it could have the potential to reduce the prison population, which certainly in this country is extraordinarily high. I mean, it's one of the things, whenever we write about it in The Economist, when we do a chart, it's we always need a, a broken y-axis to accommodate the United States. It's really uh, unique in, in this respect. Um, but you're right that for, for the people who run the prisons, perhaps that might not be so appealing. Uh, one, one thing that interested me when I was in Colorado just the other month, um, I asked the authorities there in Denver what legalization had done to their policing needs. And I was kind of, I was expecting them to say, well, you know, great, now we don't need to enforce these marijuana laws, you know, we we don't need so many police, the police have more time to do other more important stuff. 
And I think that's, you know, to some extent that's true, but they surprised me by saying that actually, since legalization, they've had to hire more police. And I said, well, why is this? And they said, well, the reason is that actually now we've got this quite complex regulatory framework. You know, before there was just a straightforward ban. If, if the police saw marijuana, they knew that that was bad, right? You know, they, they knew that that person was breaking the law. Whereas now what happens in Colorado, they'll get a complaint from a neighbor saying, hey, you know, my neighbor's growing too much cannabis in their house. Can you come and sort it out? The police will go round and the neighbor will say, well, you know, these plants are mine. I think they're allowed half a dozen each or something like that. They'll say, well, these are mine. These ones belong to my brother-in-law and he lives here, but he's, he's out of town. And, you know, you can just imagine it's actually it's quite a big regulatory challenge. And, and so for the police there, I was surprised by this, but so far, actually, they've had to hire more people to enforce these sort of relatively complex, nuanced regulations than they had before to enforce or, you know, to really to fail to enforce, but, you know, to try to enforce the all out ban. So it's it's interesting. You, I suspect also that you may find that for all the kind of pro prison lobbying, you're going to very soon have a very powerful lobby on the other side. And we're already seeing actually on, on the cannabis lobby um, following legalization, more and more money is getting behind the pro legalization initiatives. And when you see ballot measures now, if you look at the money going to each side of the campaign, and I outline this a bit in the book, the, these days the, the yes side of the campaign tends to have more funding than the no side because businesses are getting behind it. They see an opportunity. Um, and we know from the past that tobacco companies are already looking into this as a possible line of business. So I suspect that although you will have very strong lobbying against, you, you may find that actually the lobbying in favour uh, is soon stronger still. We'll see, but that, that would be my guess for what it's worth. You want to add something on? Right here. Uh, Jose Diaz with the Reforma newspaper from Mexico. Uh, when you're reading Newswire's uh, and you see the stereotypes used when describing drug trafficking, which are the most that you hate? Like, like for example, when the capture of Chapo Guzman in Mexico, people keep saying, you know, this single man runs the Sinaloa cartel, mm -hmm. right? We know that's not true entirely, but which are the figures in the public discourse that you mostly hate of to describe this industry? Good question. I, I think one of the things that's most frustrating is, is the one that I mentioned at the beginning about the prices. You know, very often you see it reported that, you know, there was a big bust of opium poppies in Afghanistan with a, a street value in London of however many million pounds. And of course, it's not worth that at that stage in the supply chain. So the kind of innumeracy involved in calculating the, the value of the drugs at different stages is, is an important one. Um, I think one of the things that that really bugs me most if you're talking about the kind of stereotypes it's the way that um drug traffickers have, have managed to cultivate a, a reputation as being almost kind of lovable rogues and there's a, a chapter in the book where i talk about their publicity efforts and their public relations and you can see how effective they've been in, in the way that i mean there's a, a british former drug trafficker you may have heard of called howard marks who has written an autobiography called mr nice which was one of his aliases. Um, and he describes his adventures trafficking drugs as a great kind of enjoyable escapade. And yet he was funneling money into Colombia where it was being used, as, as you know, to murder people in their thousands. And I think this, this sort of willingness to 
describe drug traffickers in these slightly sort of uh, lovable, jokey terms is, is a real problem, actually. It's, it's something that people in the rich world just don't get. And I've come across people in, in Britain, and I'm sure people, there are people in the States who are similar, who are paid-up members of Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch, and, and yet go and buy cocaine. And you want to say to them, you know, have you any idea how your money is being spent? It's, it's you know, the least fair trade business on earth. And I think all of this is, is just evidence of what an effective job the traffickers have done in, in helping to sort of launder their image. So that's that's one thing that really bugs me. I think any reporting on someone like El Chapo needs to be absolutely clear about the way that he spends his money. And that was a deficiency, incidentally, in the Sean Penn piece. He, he was far too quick to swallow this line that he's just a kind of honest guy from the mountains trying to make a living. He's nothing of the sort, as you well know. Uh, so th that would be one thing that I would highlight. I, I, I would just add that uh, if you just want to have the best collection of stereotypes uh, and idiocies about this, just read uh, Sean Penn's interview about which Chapo in Rolling Stone. Read that and you have there everything you need to know about the, the stupid ways of understanding uh, the drug wars. Tom, when you were doing the research for this Worst book, did you find um, references to how much consumption of each drug is problematic because not all consumption of drugs leads to addiction. I mean, when it comes to marijuana, it's only a fraction of the consumers who are actually problematic. When it comes to cocaine, it's a larger share. I guess when it comes to heroin and methamphetamines, things go up. Uh, do you have figures on, on how much of, of consumption of each drug is actually problematic? Some. Um, I'm just trying to think what's in the book, but the I mean, the, the book is mostly focused on the sort of um, more on the supply side than the demand side. It's, yeah. it's about the cartels. But there are you can do interesting comparisons there. I mean, there was there's one interesting study that I read, um, which I believe I cite in the book at some point, where the authors compared the sort of effective dose of particular drugs with the lethal dose. Yeah. In other words, how much does it take to get you high or whatever? And how much does it take to kill you? Um and they, they measured these against each other, and I forget the exact figures, but for for alcohol, just to give an example that you know we're all very familiar with, I think the the example they gave it was a ratio of something like ten to one or a dozen to one. So if it takes you you know a couple of pints to get a bit drunk, then maybe if you drink twenty four pints, you might be at you know real risk of death. <laughs> um, and for heroin, I believe it you know heroin it was just about the lowest. It was something like five to one. And given that the illicit type of heroin is of varying purity. You can see how people overdose very quickly if, if they take something which is purer than they're used to. For marijuana, of course, as far as anybody knows, it's impossible to overdose, and many people have tested that theory to, uh, to distraction. <laughs> We're going to have some questions. Right over there in the back, we still have uh, 10 more minutes. Wait for the mic. Thank you. Uh, my name is Chrisanna Finley. I am from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation that links all forms of sexual exploitation, whether that's sex trafficking, prostitution, uh, pornography, etc. My question is, I, I would really like to know what observations you made during your research regarding the uh, sex trafficking and sex industry and how, I guess, the intersection or parallels that you see and that, and also, the second part of my question, what you believe is the root demand of both industries? Sure, yeah. Okay. 
It's a good question. You do find overlap in this, and I, I cover it to some extent in the book in a, a chapter that I've done on the sort of the, the different industries into which the cartels are diversifying, because like any other business, they're, they're looking for different ways to use the skills that they have to make money. And with the trafficking business, with the sex trafficking business, they're getting into that through their expertise in, in smuggling, because of course, you know, what they specialize in is getting things over the border uh, without being detected. And that's a, uh, a skill that can be applied to people just in the same way that it can be applied to drugs. And they're getting, what, what we've seen is that they're, the Mexican cartels are getting more and more involved in the business of trafficking migrants, not always for sex. Uh, most of the migrants are um, people who pay a fee to be, to be brought across the border of, of their own accord. But in some instances, they are being trafficked for sexual exploitation. And the numbers on this are quite interesting, actually. The, the proportion of migrants visiting, you know, moving illegally to the United States over the Mexican border over the past few decades, the proportion of them using a, a so-called coyote, a, a people trafficker, has increased very dramatically. In the, in the 1970s, the great majority of people went on their own. It was relatively easy to cross the border then. And the proportion using sort of professional help, if you like, has been rising steadily. And the latest survey found, I think, more than 90% of illegal migrants use the, the help of a paid trafficker. And, I mean, this is a result of the crackdown at the border which has increased the price as well of, of the fee of using a coyote. You can actually do a, a chart, I've got one in the book, plotting the um, number of hours spent policing the border against the average price of a coyote's services, and they're perfectly correlated. You know, the more we spend money on enforcing uh, the border, the more we drive up the price of, of the services offered by the people traffickers. Because crossing the border is a more difficult business than it used to be, the cartels, which have a more professional um, smuggling operation than, than others, are getting more heavily involved in it. And so for them, it's become a, quite a nice earner, and so they're more involved in getting people across the border. The majority are, are people who want to go to work, you know, to, to do straightforward work, but a proportion of them are, are people being trafficked against their will. And it, it's a worrying development that the cartels which are so good at getting people and, and drugs across the border are now turning their attention to this crime, which is a particularly horrible one. Um, good afternoon, my name is Luke Fair. I'm a master's student in security policy also at GW. Um, I want to thank all of you for coming today. It was absolutely great talk, and especially Mr. Naeem. Uh, your books actually required reading in one of my classes, Elicit. Um, so there's been a lot of talk today about Colombia um, and the FARC, and I also kind of wanted to discuss maybe more in depth um, you know, the upcoming potential peace process and how that could affect the cocaine market and the drug trade in general. So um, from a business perspective, you have this group that has a huge share in the cocaine uh, business market in Colombia right now. And so if they agree to you know, cease their criminal activities uh, after the accord, you essentially have a huge player in the market exiting you know, pretty abruptly. So I'm wondering how you think that's going to affect the, you know, the drug trade in Colombia, the cocaine trade in Colombia, and maybe in the world in general. And then maybe, um, you know, possibly speculating on the security side of things, uh, once the FARC exit the market, are you going to have sort of, you know, a power vacuum and, you know, uh, people battling to kind of control the market in Colombia, like you have what's going on in Mexico right now? Or could there be some kind of different transition we haven't seen yet? Thank you. Well, it's a very good question, and I, nobody quite knows the answer, but... If, if the FARC was to get out of cocaine, I mean, you, you would wonder, I suppose, who would fill the gap in Colombia. The other question that I would have would be which other countries in that region might the business move to? Because one of the big stories of the coca leaf cultivation business of the past decades 
is that every time countries have managed to drive it out of one country, it's very often cropped up in another one. And people talk about the balloon effect and the it's called the cockroach effect sometimes in Latin America because it's like, you know, you drive them out of one room and they take up residence somewhere else. Um, and that's what we saw, you know, it used to be that Peru was the main cultivator. They drove it out of Peru. It went to Colombia. They drove some of it out of Colombia and it went back to Peru. That's where we are now. As far as I understand it, Peru is now the main uh, provider of coca leaf in the world. So I would suspect that if the FARC do get out of cocaine, and it's far from a done deal that they will, but if, if they did, uh, I, I would keep an eye on Peru and, and Bolivia and have a look at that. Um, but I'm, I'm less up with the latest news on, on the talks, to be honest. I expect Moises knows more about this than I do. Um, I, I'm a supporter of the peace process in Colombia. I hope it goes well. I hope it, they, they sign it and I hope it works. Uh, but those are all hopes. Um, and in essence, you can uh, use Tom's uh, approach of using business uh, metaphors uh, and methodologies to, un to apply to other fields and use it for the peace process and say that essentially what's going on is that the government of Colombia is uh, launching um, a, a friendly takeover of the, Frank, of, the, of, of the FARC franchise. So they're buying the franchise of the FARC. That doesn't mean, and so the FARC disappears, more or less, uh, as an armed group, um, and that brand disappears. But they already have another brand that replaces that in, in Colombia, and they call it Bacrim. Bacrim is bandas criminales, criminal gangs, criminal bands. Uh, it is hard to imagine that uh, just because the government of Colombia uh, signs an agreement with the FARC, the, the whole industry of uh, co cocaine and, 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 drug, uh, and drugs in Colombia is going to disappear. Um, th that vacuum will be filled, uh, both in Colombia and elsewhere. Um, and uh, the, the good thing is that they are, you know, the FARC was essentially um, providing security for the drug cartels. That was, a, you know, a masking uh, it under the ideology of social redemption and so fighting uh, for equality and, uh, and justice. Uh, but they were essentially um, mercenaries uh, that were providing securities to the drug cartels and to the drug trafficking operation. Uh, that, now that is gone and they're going to be replaced uh, as service providers. The others will provide the security and the armed protection uh, that the drug cartels uh, require. Um, and as far as what else will happen is that a lot of that will move to Venezuela. Venezuela is you know, rapidly becoming a failed state, incapable of controlling borders. Uh, a lot of the cartels and a lot of the drug operations in Colombia and, and the drug pins, uh, the, the kingpins, uh, are operating in the border in Venezuela, in Venezuelan uh, territory. Venezuela is today the main source of drugs to Europe. They come from the Andes, uh, and they are uh, the, essentially transshipped in Venezuela uh, to, to, to Europe and, and elsewhere. So, you know, essentially what will happen is that we will see a transfer of operations to, um, to another country and to another form of organizations. Just to let you know that on March 30th, we're hosting an event on the peace process on Col in Colombia. At 4 p.m., we will have uh, Jose Miguel Vivanco from Human Rights Watch and Adam Isaacson from WOLA debating on the merits of the, of the peace accord. Um, we have time for one last question. Uh, the gentleman with the green tie over there. 
Hello. The, green, oh, the, green. the guy with the green tie yeah. gave me the, the mic to me, pass it okay. to me. Thank you, sir. Um, <laughs> this question is uh, for Moises, and, and could you comment on the recent initiatives sponsored by the UN and the OAS in Guatemala and Honduras, where they basically are outsourcing their justice system? Uh, do you see this as something necessary or replicable in countries that are dominated by cartels like Mexico or, or as, as our own Venezuela? Thank you. What a great question and uh, what a difficult answer. I don't know, but it's a very good question. Uh, as, as you all know, it, what we're talking about is that at some point uh, uh, there was the Guatemala outsourced uh, um, its um, judicial system and essentially a, a UN sanctioned um, body uh, came to, 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 to decide on, 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 on on people, uh, on corruption, essentially. And they, they became quite a force in the country. They, for example, had influence on the, um, uh, on the decisions concerning um, magistrates and all that. And Tom lived there. Tom covered that uh, in, in detail, so I will ask him also to, to. So it is a horrible thing when you say, you know, as a country, I have to recognize that I'm not capable of providing justice, you know, that I have to outsource that because I cannot do it because there are not enough honest lawyers and magistrates or people that are going to be immune to the temptations of the drug cartels and others. So it's a very sad story, but at the same time, it's a very practical answer. And so the answer is I don't know. I think it's a great question, and I don't know the future of that. I can imagine that this is going to be mostly uh, with small and weak countries. I cannot imagine Mexico or Brazil deciding that they cannot handle the justice system and I'm going to call the OAS to run it. You know, I don't see that. So it's going to be small countries mostly. But Tom, Tom may know much more about this than I. No, no, I, I don't think I do, but I, I'll just very quickly add, I, I think it is, it's a real dilemma for them. It reminds me a bit of the extradition question, actually. In, in countries like Mexico, there's this question about is, should they sort of outsource the holding of someone like El Chapo or should they do it at home? And I, I'm not sure I know the answer either, but I, I suspect po possibly the best thing is a sort of compromise whereby in the short term these kind of outside interventions can help. But really, the, the priority in the long run has to be getting the domestic system functioning properly. So... I'd say things like the CCIG in Guatemala and the, the equivalent in Honduras, are, I, you know, I would support them. I think they've done good work, certainly in Guatemala. Um, but they can't go on forever. They, I think they should probably have a time limit and, and the emphasis should be on, on building institutional capacity at home. Same with the prisons. You, know, you can extradite a few people, but you've really got to fix the, the domestic system. He says you wanted to have a final word on... on no, I, I, it's not a final word. I just wanted to make sure that at some point in the conversation we raise the issue that we may be fighting the, uh, the old war in which we are fighting the war on drugs that are harvested and imported. And the next war or the current war ought to be about drugs that are not harvested but by cooked and not imported but uh, made at home and made here. And you know that I'm talking about um, crystal meth and uh, all kinds of... Uh, um, drugs that are synthetic, that are chemical, you know, from ecstasy to, to, to all of that. So that, that kind of drugs uh, are growing quite quickly, 
uh, and are quite significant. And, and Tom has a great chapter in the book about the cartels diversifying. Uh, and so they, they first diversify, as he already mentioned, he, they diversify towards people trafficking. But they are also, and the book also shows some very interesting examples about how they're diversifying into methamphetamines and, and other stuff. Um, so it may be, and it, it plays the conversation we just had. Imagine that the conversation we just had does not include importation. So there's no, nothing to interdict. There's no interdiction. Uh, there is no eradication of plants. There is nothing that, that many of the things we discussed here do not apply if the main drugs we're talking about are cooked in a lab. Yeah. and not harvested. And if they're, instead of being imported from a third world country, are made in, you know, in, in somewhere in the, in the United States. This is a, a whole breaking bad scenario that, that I think creates all kinds of, of analytical uh, challenges that are, are even less clear than the ones uh, we have with the drugs that are agricultural stables. Because you point out something very interesting in the book, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote, it says, four out of 10 Americans admit to having taken illegal drugs, a figure that suggests that a society has decided to tolerate a certain amount of dealing so long as it comes without violence. But it's dealing. What about when he's producing the drug here in the United States? Well, you're right. I think there's a big, big change going on here. Historically, there's been this division between so-called producer countries, like say, Colombia, and consumer countries, like the United States. And now we're seeing this leveling out where consumer countries like the States are producing more drugs. And indeed, producer countries like Colombia are consuming more drugs as, as they get richer. They're adopting all kinds of middle class habits, including drug taking. It's, it's a, a middle class vice, basically. Um, and I think that in some ways this could help the politics of, of the process, because until now you've, you've had an imbalance where countries like the United States and, and the countries of Western Europe have been quite content to wage this war against drugs, which has terrible costs on the supply side, because those costs are not incurred in, in their own countries. And they say, well, as far as we're concerned, we want to just stop the stuff getting here. And I think it's, it, things are going to change on, on both fronts. If, if, if consumer countries start becoming producer countries, they're, they're going to think twice about raiding meth labs in the same way that they might suggest they'd be raided were they in another country. And I think equally, you might find that producer countries, whether it's Colombia or Mexico or anywhere else, might start thinking about the, the issue differently if, if they start getting a, a sort of epidemic of drug taking of the sort that we've seen in, in the rich world. So I think that, that could change the politics of it quite interestingly. Well, thank you very much. We run out of time. I want to thank the speakers. <laughs> For such